Matthew 4, we're reading verses 12 through 23. Would y'all stand with me as we read this together? Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we've talked about this before on some level, and yet this might surprise you guys to some extent when I say this, but I actually believe that we live in one of the harder mission fields in the world. Um, that idea is, a, is hard for a lot of people to swallow because we live in a thoroughly religious place and we live in a thoroughly Christianized type place, but yet the cultural nature of the Christianity that we see around us is, is markedly different from the kind of followership that we just read about where men were willing to like literally drop everything and leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. For a long time, I thought that being a disciple was either just something for those 12 guys in, in the pages of Scripture, or, or being a disciple was something that was like this top tier of radicalism within Christianity. Like, like, People were Christians, but then there were disciples way up here. Disciples were people who were willing to like pick up their whole family and move to third world countries or willing to move into like the slums in a city. Like Those were real disciples. To some extent, I, I, I feel like that's kind of what was put into me as a child was that those were disciples, but to be a Christian didn't mean to be a disciple. Like, uh, disciples were just one kind of Christian in some way. The adults that I grew up around in, in my upper middle class church um, <laughs> were not like that at all, right? They were just good people who went to church and prayed before meals and were generally like moral people in their day-to-day -day life. I remember one Sunday when a member of our church, who was this guy who owned a string of gas stations, got up in front of the church, wanted to share a testimony, and his testimony was this, that he felt deeply convicted by the Lord that his gas stations were open on, on Sundays. And, and I remember him saying, like, I don't care if I go under, I'm closing all my gas stations on Sunday. And, and this was like standing ovation in our church. Um, and, and I vividly remember this because to some extent, as a kid, like, that was my impression of what it meant to be like an extreme follower of Jesus, was, was that I'm closing my gas stations on Sunday. I went to a conference a while back for Christian business people, 
And examples kind of similar to that were given for what it looked like to follow Jesus in the workplace today. Uh, The speaker talked a lot about companies like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby who are closed on Sundays. And, And what a testimony it was to their faith because of how much money they were potentially losing or leaving on the table because they weren't opening up on those days. And, and listen, my intention is not to sneer at that at all or to act like that isn't a sacrifice of some kind. But when, when you live in a culture that portrays that as extreme discipleship, as extreme followership of Jesus, I think we're missing the boat to a certain extent. The men that Jesus called gave up everything to follow him. And as we read today, it's as if, it seems as if, just to kind of take this little snippet of Scripture out of the text, it seems as if Jesus kind of popped up one day by the sea and said, follow me. And these guys just, you know, like robots, dropped everything, the fishing nets, and climbed out of the boat and went with him without hesitation. In fact, there's this word, uh, euthaos, that is used several times within this text. It's a Greek word that means immediately or at once. And, And so Matthew's wanting us to come away with this understanding here that there wasn't any hesitation here for them, right? That there wasn't immediacy to their response to Jesus, that his call was not met with a, yeah, but hang on just a second. It was, it was instantaneous to the point that we're leaving dad in the boat, right? Holding the stuff. So there is an instantaneous nature to this, but um, one of the things we know from the Gospels, John 1 gives us a glimpse into a scene that happened actually before the scene that we read today. <clears throat> this is from John chapter 1. It says, The next day again, John, it's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So in church tradition, Andrew, the brother of Peter, is sometimes called the protokletos, which is a Greek word that means first called. And and here is where we see that in action. And, And what I want us to notice is this. Andrew, upon discovering the Messiah, one, leaves the rabbi that he was following, right? He was a disciple of John the Baptist. As soon as he discovers the Messiah, the Lamb of God, it says he leaves him, he starts following Jesus. And and there's both a physical, like I'm actually kind of walking after this guy now, And a a very spiritual thing that's happening here as well. Upon discovering the Messiah, notice also the first things he wants to do is go tell people what he's found and actually like kind of take them by the hand and bring them to Jesus. So he goes to his brother and he says, we found the Messiah and then brings Peter 
to Jesus. This is what a disciple does. There is a forsaking that has taken place. I'm going to turn from this. I'm now following Jesus. And now I have to tell other people what I found. I've got to bring other people to this and help them discover it as well. So by the time that Jesus comes along in our text in Matthew on the shore and says, follow me, these guys already were on board, right? They had already discovered the Messiah. They already knew who he was. So there was a process that Jesus had been working out in their lives leading up to that moment of them going, okay, yeah, it's time. We're leaving dad in the boat. Let me share a quote I heard. Um, I love this. This is from John Stott, uh, who is now deceased, but a famous theologian. Um, This is from a small book he wrote called Basic Christianity. He says, it's now time for us to ask the personal question put to Jesus Christ by Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, which was this, what shall I do, Lord? If you remember the story of Paul, or Saul as he's known, he's he's struck down with blindness on the road to Damascus. He hears the voice of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And, And after all of this, he says, what shall I do? Stock goes on, he says, or the similar question asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Clearly, we must do something. Christianity is no mere passive acquiescence in a series of propositions, however true those propositions may be. We may believe in the deity and salvation of Christ and acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in need of his salvation, but this does not make us Christians. We have to make a personal response to Jesus Christ, committing ourselves unreservedly to Him as our Lord and Savior. At its simplest, Christ's call was, follow me. He asked men and women for their personal allegiance. He invited them to learn from Him, to obey His words, and to identify themselves with His cause. Now, there can be no following without a previous forsaking. To follow Christ is to renounce all lesser loyalties. Let me be more explicit about the forsaking, which cannot be separated from the following of Jesus Christ. First, there must be a renunciation of sin that, in a word, is repentance. It's the first part of Christian conversion. It can in no circumstances be bypassed. Repentance and faith belong together. We cannot follow Christ without forsaking sin. Repentance is a definite turn from every thought, word, deed, and habit which is known to be wrong. There can be no compromise here. There may be sins in our lives which we do not think we could ever overcome, but we must be willing to let them go as we cry to God for deliverance from them. If you are in doubt regarding what is right, what is wrong, do not be too greatly influenced by the customs and conventions of Christians you may know. Go by the clear teaching of the Bible and by the prompting of your conscience, and Christ will gradually lead you further along the path of righteousness. When He puts His finger on anything, give it up. 
It may be some association or some recreation, some literature we read, or some attitude of pride, jealousy, resentment, or an unforgiving spirit. Jesus told his followers to pluck out their eye and cut off their hand or their foot if it caused them to sin. We're not to obey obey this with dead literalism, of course, and mutilate our bodies. It's a figure of speech for dealing ruthlessly with the avenues along which temptation comes to us. So that's a long quote, obviously, but do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there can be no real following of Jesus if there hasn't been a previous turning away from lesser loyalties, right? In the same way that Andrew says, whoop, I've got a new rabbi now. Even though John is incredible, like John the Baptist. Think of how Jesus speaks about John the Baptist. He says, this is like an Old Testament prophet has come back, right? John the Baptist, incredible, godly, faithful man. But the moment he finds the Messiah, oh yeah, I'm not following him. I'm not following just some human. I'm following the Christ. But there can be no following of Christ unless we are willing to truly put down the sin of our lives. And we've talked about this before. We talk about it often. It, it's, it's throughout the message of Jesus, right? We can't, we can't like be the church reflecting on the teaching of Jesus and not continually like encounter our own sin and, and, cont- and continually encounter Jesus' call for us to repent of our own sin. So listen, if the Lord asks you to close your business on Sunday, you close it, right? What did, what did Stott say? He said, anything he puts his finger on, be done with it. There can't be a following without a previous forsaking. But, but hear this also. Jesus isn't looking to make bargains with you when it comes to following him. He isn't interested in you saying things like, Lord, I'll do A in the hopes that that'll appease you so that I won't really have to do B, which is the thing that I'm really afraid of doing. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? There may be times where, you, where you're inclined to want to like, make a deal with him. Well, I'll do this, but, but at least it's not this, right? There's this interesting scene in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is going along the road, it says, as he's going along the road, someone yells out and says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have the air, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So these are three encounters that Jesus has in this moment. And I think all three of these encounters point to the fact that most often we are more concerned with what the Bible would call the cares of this world than we are with actually following Jesus. In the parable of the sower, some of the seed is scattered, falls on the road. Some of it's scattered and it falls on rocky soil. Some of it's scattered and it falls among thorn bushes. 
And Jesus said, the seed that falls among thorns represents two things. Represents, or the thorns rather, represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. And he said that those things choke out the world, or choke out the word rather. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out the word of the gospel. So these aren't like atheists that Jesus is encountering on the road. These are people who, despite Jesus' controversial nature, are willing to publicly declare, I will follow you wherever you go. And it's like Jesus says, well, you know it's going to be uncomfortable, right? Oh, I, I, like, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord, but first, dot, dot, dot. Let me go bury my father. But first, let me go tell my family where I'm going so they won't be worried about me. And we read that and we go, man, those are incredibly reasonable things, right? But yet Jesus is trying to make a point here. If we are more worried about the things of this world than we are with being obedient to him, then we're never going to be obedient to him, right? We're going to give him lip service. We're going to say, yes, Lord, right? We're going to say, I'll do whatever you want, Lord. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. But, but, so here's a question. Are you a Jesus admirer or are you a Jesus follower? Are you somebody who appreciates Jesus, likes the teaching of Jesus, would say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Christ, but you're really somebody who's an admirer versus somebody who has truly turned their back on their sin and has said, yes, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you. Are you a Jesus admirer or are you a Jesus follower? Dean and Sarah says, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim they love Jesus. If the Jesus you follow has never required anything of you, then I'm not sure you're following the real Jesus. And if it's the real Jesus that you are following, then you realize that it's not simply about what you're giving up. It's about what you're taking on because of what you've given up. If you're really following Jesus, then it's not about what you've lost. It's about what you've gained. And about the space in your life that losing some of these things has created for you to take on Jesus. In other words, following Jesus means patterning your life after him. It doesn't necessarily mean simply mentally agreeing with a theological framework. And that can be tricky for people who are a bit more intellectual. I meet people who it's like they want to say, listen, I've, I've looked at all the evidence. Like I've looked at other religions. I've explored the arguments. I've read a bunch of books about this. And I've come to the conclusion that like the Judeo-Christian Christ-centered worldview is the right one. They, they've pose this as uh, like an intellectual math problem that they've had to figure out. And I've done the work, and I've figured it out, and Jesus is Lord. But that is not how somebody becomes a Christian, right? That's not what we've talked about thus far, right? That, that's, it's not simply about agreeing with the proposition that Jesus is Lord. It's about being willing to say no and leave behind the other parts of you because you are saying yes and taking on who Jesus is. 
right? So you can claim Christ all you want, but we're, we're looking for obedience here. We're looking for a forsaking that leads to faithful obedience. We're looking for people who want to truly place their allegiance in Him. To become His disciple means to apprentice yourself to Him, to become a learner, to become one who is being taught and instructed by Him, to become one who is changing into the likeness of the Master because you are sitting at His feet. So let me ask you this, what is your but? Because all, all these guys that we've seen thus far, all the guys in John's gospel basically said, yes, Lord, but. So wh- what is that for you? Because here's the thing, I think we all have it. I don't think any of us are removed from this. None of us are this perfect, crystalline example of discipleship. We all have areas of our life where we think, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, but... We may not be honest with other people about this or with ourselves, but it's there. What is the thing that you're not willing to let go of? What what is the thing you're not willing to turn your back on? It may not be like some vice or some obvious sin. It could be your own pride. It could be your own need for control. It could could be your worry and your fear. Saying, I'm not, I'm not going like, to set that aside and actually trust Jesus. Here's the deal. Do you think Jesus doesn't know you have to bury your father? Do you think Jesus doesn't care about your family knowing what's happened to you and where you are? Right? Do, do you think Jesus doesn't care about your desire to be comfortable? Jesus knows all of those things about you. Right? Jesus knows the thing that you're like, ah, I'm just not sure how this would work out or how this would play out. Is he not big enough to like, take care of those things? Do you, do you feel like I've got to retain some level of control over that area of my life? For many of us, that's a lot of what it is. And another way to, to like, call that out is to just simply say it's It's unbelief. I was sharing with some of the guys earlier that um, through some of the coaching work that Justin and I do with Continuum, um, we will give people a spiritual assessment. It's, it's like a real quick, um, I don't know, maybe 120 questions we just ask you about kind of where you're at in your faith walk. And, and the first part of that little quiz is all about belief statements. I believe this. I believe that. Um, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. You know, just kind of basic things like that. And you're supposed to kind of rate where you fall on a scale of one to five. So five would be, I believe that with all my heart, right? And what's interesting is um, most people who take that quiz are going to answer four or five on most questions um, involving questions of belief, But then later on in the quiz, it really gets into questions of what do you do, right? Are you giving, right? Are you compassionate? Are you loving? Uh, Are you prone to anger? Are you prone to sin, right? And and what's interesting is that I found people are very self-aware about that stuff and completely unself-aware about their belief. And what we often don't see is the fact that what we do actually shines the light on what we truly believe. So many of us agree 
with a lot of intellectual truths about Jesus. But when we start to look at our life, it becomes clear that there are things about this that I don't fully believe. And if I did fully believe it, I would, I would live differently. I, I would feel different. I wouldn't be worried. I wouldn't be afraid about everything. Right? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned about this and this. So what we have said before is that we are all unbelievers on some level. And, and, and we don't say that to celebrate that. We say that because we live in this Christian culture that wants to act like that's not true. And it is true. And until we name it and call it out, and for you specifically, when I say, what's your butt? It's identifying the areas of your life where those things are true. Where I, like, man, I don't fully believe the gospel when it comes to this, right? Or I don't, maybe it's, maybe it's your kids. I don't fully trust God when it comes to my kids, like, I, I feel like I'm the one who's really re- protecting them, or I feel like I'm the one who's really responsible for them, right? Or I feel like I'm the one who really has to provide for them. I don't fully believe he's my provider. You follow me? I don't fully believe that he's going to come through for us. Maybe it's healing, you know, who knows? But if somebody were to ask you, you would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I've been taught. So the question is this morning, how do we identify those areas in our life and begin to forsake them, right? Begin to turn from our unbelief and and truly say, no, I'm going to pursue Jesus with allegiance. Even though I don't understand it all, even though I don't know how it's all going to work out, I believe that if he is the Messiah, he's big enough to deal with that. He's big enough to handle my doubt. He's big enough to deal with circumstances that I foresee being an issue. He can take care of all of that stuff. And what he's calling me to do is to trust him. That's what faith is all about, isn't it? He's calling me to trust him. There's this beautiful story in Mark chapter 9 about a boy who was brought to Jesus. And uh, he's perhaps epileptic, having seizures. The boy's father says to Jesus, if, he says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father immediately, there's that word again, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know the backstory of this man and his epileptic son, but you have to think as a loving father who, who's now bringing his son to Jesus in tears that they, they've tried everything. Like we've taken him to medicine men and to people who claimed that this would help or that that would help. Who knows what they had done to him over the years because they loved him and they wanted these things to stop. They bring him to Jesus, and, and, and even in his request to Jesus, there is this air of speculation about it. If, if you can do something here, please, please do it. But in the midst of this, there's this incredibly honest response. Like, more than anything, I want my son to be healed, so I, I believe, but at the same time, I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. And, and gosh, guys, I think if, if we can get to this level of honesty with ourselves in talking to Jesus, 
Like, I believe, but in order to really fully believe, I need you. Because, because here's the deal. This isn't a sermon where the end of it is, we all got to try harder, guys. Because we can't do it. This is not something where it's like, I'm just not giving it enough of my time, or I'm, not, I'm just not working hard enough to believe. It's like, no, 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 we need Jesus to help our unbelief, right? We need His Holy Spirit to manifest Himself in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. We still have to be obedient. We still have to say yes. We still have to follow Him even when we don't know what's going to happen or what the conclusion of the story is going to be. But it's a process, isn't this us? We look at Jesus, we hear the words of Jesus, we want what Jesus offers, but yet there's still unbelief. And I think this is a big key to following Christ, is just being honest about those things and submitting them to Him and turning from them, not acting like they aren't there. When we cover them up, when we turn a blind eye to them, when we think, oh yeah, I've got this nailed down, that's, that's where we get off track. So are you willing to forsake your unbelief? Are you willing to, like the man in the story, to like cry out to Jesus in helplessness and say, I can't do this. I, I need you to help my unbelief. This morning, let's pray together. And let's collectively ask Jesus to help us. Father, would you shine a light on the areas of our life where we have not fully submitted ourselves to you? The areas where we fear, where we worry. The areas we gloss over or we hide from ourselves even because we're afraid you're going to ask for them. Lord, teach us through the power of your Spirit to trust you fully. What is a real disciple? A real disciple is the one who truly submits his or herself to you as, as an apprentice. Not just somebody who likes what you have to say. Not just somebody who can repeat some of your words. But the person who has truly given you their allegiance. King Jesus, be king of our lives. May we recognize that if we say yes, Lord, there can be no but. If we follow you in faith, Father, help us to trust that you are good and that you will make a way. And help us to press on. Thank you for your grace and love. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.